Amen. Well, if you turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 30, we are nearing the end of this book, but not nearly the end of the story. We'll continue through in 2 Samuel as we continue to see God's work in the life of David, and we've seen much of that work, and I was thinking about that just as we were singing that last song about when trials come, that one day, one day all things will be made new and we'll see the hope that the Lord has called us to. We will be able to, to look back and see the faithful, providential hand of God at work. But, but in this moment, well, we need to be reminded of that because there are times when we are in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, and we have a hard time understanding how that fits in to the big picture and one of the great resources that God has given us, the, the lens through which we might see these trials and these sufferings, is through the Holy Word God has given us this morning. And through uh, studies like First Samuel and through chapters like chapter 30, where we see uh, David enduring a trial and we see how God is at work and how God is faithful, even when David has not been faithful. And it's a reminder to us of the gospel work in our own lives. Now, that picture of God's faithfulness to us, even when we struggle, when we lack faith. And I hope that as we walk through the Word this morning, you'll be reminded of that and reminded of the simple fact, friends, that, that, that you're not here this morning because you've got your act together. <laughs> and the gospel is not at work in your life because you're so deserving of it. God is working out His ways and His will in and through us because of His great grace that He shows us. And I pray that we will see a picture of that grace this morning as we look to his word together as a reminder of where we are in 1 Samuel, where we left off. David now has sought out shelter among the Philistines. He is running from Saul and feels there's no safe place for him for Israel. He, he's not really sought the Lord in that process. He's just gone and lived among his enemies for some time now. In fact, it seems he has partnered up with them to the point that he's willing to go into battle with them and bring his men into battle with the Philistines, with the enemies of God, against the very people of God. And really, the only thing that keeps that from happening is God's providential hand, and God uses that hand through a very unlikely source, through the Philistines. The Philistines essentially don't want David and his men to fight with them. They, they don't trust David, and they have good reason not to trust him. He has been deceiving Achish, who is one of the kings of the Philistines. They fear that he will turn against them, and perhaps that was his plan all along. We, we don't know, but, but God protects him in this situation through the Philistines. And essentially at this point, he and his men are making their way back to that town, that village, that the Philistine king had given him. And that's where we pick up in this story. And so we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 30 in its entirety and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand once more as I read today's passage for us. And this is what the holy word of God says. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, on the third day the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. 
They killed no one, but carried them off and went on their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until no more strength. They had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. And in Noam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul. Each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in, his, in the Lord, his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, for they were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, and his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights, David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites, and against that which belonged to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who had mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought all back. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left by the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people and he greeted them, all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone out with David said, because they did not go out with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given to us. 
He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who, who, he who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziglag, he set part of the spoil, sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of Negeb at Jatir, and Aror, the Sithmoth, and Eshtemoah, and Rachel in the cities of Jeremelites, and in the city of the Kenites, and in Hormah, and in Bor Hashan, and in Athka, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. If you would pray with me. Father God, we pray that as we consider your word this morning, that you might help us not only to understand, but to apply what we learn. God, that you might lead us to repentance and faith and trust, and that we might see an even greater picture of your providential hand and your grace at work, not just in David's life, but in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come towards the end of 1 Samuel, we, we truly do find David and his men at a place where it seems that they have run out of options. Some of our study, much of our study, had to do with David really moving around Israel, running from Saul. And he got to the point where he felt he had nowhere else to go, so now he's gone to live among the Philistines. But as we've already noted, they're among the Philistines, and it seems that now that they don't even want him. And so now David is at a place where there's nowhere really left for him to go. Things seemed bad for him and his men, and yet we see in this passage today that they are going to get worse. And often that seems to be the case when it seems that we're in a place where we feel nothing else can go wrong, then something does. And yet, what I believe we learn from this passage today is that God is sovereign over all of those things, and He is at work uh, to move about His will in His ways. And I hope you'll see that as we walk through this passage. And so, uh, we'll begin here with that first point I put in your lesson, in your notes, that we see, number one, that David hits rock bottom, and he turns to the Lord. And he hits rock bottom, and he turns to the Lord. And so the picture we have at the beginning of this passage is that David and his men, they've, they've left the front line of battle and they're returning back to this, this portion of land that, uh, that Achish, the king, one of the kings of the Philistines, had given to them. And, and you can imagine the types of conversations that are taking place along the way. I mean, remember, David had an army of 600, and they had followed him through thick and thin, and they were by his side, but now they're probably starting to wonder what the future holds. I mean, when they lined up with David, that this was the future king of Israel, and now they're not even in Israel anymore. And then when it seemed that God was giving them provision there in the land of the Philistines, well, now that seems to be drying up. And they're probably starting to grumble and complain and wonder whether they really need to continue to follow David. And then you imagine what might be going through David's mind at this point. 
the one that years ago was blessed by God and anointed and chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. And now here he is with those men and they aren't even in Israel. And it seems that no matter what happens with Saul and no matter what Saul says to him about how he's going to be king and how these things are going to come to fruition, it never seems to work out. And perhaps David in this moment is ready to throw in the towel. And as they're thinking these things and having these conversations and they are going back home, perhaps the, the, the only hope they have or highlight they have is that they're going to be reunited with their families. They're, they're, they're not on the battle line anymore. They're going to have a little respite. They're going to have a little time with their wives and their children. But as they get closer to that town, they can see the smoke rising over the horizon. And as they get closer and closer, they start to realize what's taking place. Someone has come in and has burned everything they own to the ground. They've taken away with them their wives and their children and their possessions. We know, because the narrator lets us know at this point, that this was the Amalekites. And you may remember, uh, not too long ago in our text, we were reminded that one of Saul's great sins against God was that he did not wipe out the Amalekites when given the opportunity. These were enemies of God's people, and God had instructed Saul to, to wipe them out entirely, and he didn't obey God. And now we see one of the consequences of Saul's disobedience is that now the Amalekites have come against David and his men. Just a side note there. It's a reminder to us that when we disobey God's commands, that those consequences affect a lot of people. And they're not over quickly. They go on and they go on and they go on. That the price of our disobedience is great, and we aren't the only ones that pay it. And some of you know this well. You've, prayed, you've paid the price of other people's sin. And we certainly see that case here with David and his men. It, there shouldn't be any Amalekites at this point. And yet they are there, and they are making these raids because Saul had disobeyed God. And now David and his men are faced with the consequence of Saul's sin, and their wives and their children are gone. And so if they were distressed before, well, you can imagine how distressed they are now. In fact, verse 6 tells us that all the people were bitter in soul. Now, that's a phrase we've seen before. You may remember earlier in our text, there was that place where David seemed isolated and alone and in a cave and nowhere to turn. And then God brings to him this, this army that's going to join up with him. But one of the descriptions of that army is this very phrase, they were bitter in soul. Now then they were bitter towards Saul. They were bitter towards what Saul had done to them. And that bitterness really had come as a direct result of their sin long before. Samuel had warned the people, if you choose to be like other nations and get a king like this, he's going to take your children into battle and he's going to tax you and all these things are going to happen and you're going to be bitter. And that's exactly what took place. And so in their bitterness, they fled to David and they sided with David and they fought with David, but now the tables have turned. And now they're bitter towards David. Now they want to kill David. 
This is at the point, I think, that we see David hit rock bottom. And that's a phrase that we often use to describe that, the end of our rope, the lowest of all lows. It's an expression that comes from when you're digging down into the ground and you keep digging, you get to that point of solid rock and you can't dig anymore. It's the lowest you can go. And that's where we find David in this moment. That the one who was chosen to be king is wandering in a foreign land. That the one who is supposed to lead the people has been turned against by the people. They, they want to stone him. That the one who was promised sovereignty over this nation doesn't have anything at this point. It's been burned to the ground. His wives are gone. His children are gone. He has nothing. But it's in this moment that God turns David. In fact, I think God is sovereign over this moment. I believe God has sovereignly worked to put David in this moment so that David might turn his eyes back to where they needed to be and turn back to the Lord. And that's what happens. We see in the text, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And that phrase may seem a little unusual to us. Maybe it's not one we use very often, you probably didn't greet one another this morning. Well, how are you doing? Well, I'm great. I've been strengthening myself in the Lord. I'm hoping that I'll be strengthened in the Lord today. And yet, we see there's nothing mystical about this. There's a sense where God is, is renewing David. God has turned David, and, and David's turning his attention back to God where it should be. And that is how God is providing David's strength. One commentator I read said it this way, to strengthen ourselves in God means to remind ourselves of what Scripture says about God and His promises and to bring those truths to bear on the situation. Every trial causes opposing voices to ring in the ears of the child of God. One is the voice of our circumstances telling us that our situation is hopeless. The other is the voice of faith telling us that our God is sufficient for the trial. Did you see that, friend? That in those moments of desperation, there, there very much is a voice, a very worldly voice that tells us we're, we're without hope. Not, nothing's ever going to work out. Nothing's ever going to get better. But then for the believer, we, we turn our eyes on the Word of God. We're reminded of the promises of God. And we see that God indeed will persevere us and help us to endure. That His strength, His grace, His mercy is sufficient for every trial. And I believe that's what God is doing here with David. And so now, as David's attention is rightly where it should be and where it should have been all along, well now he desires to know the will of God. Hey, he wants to know, God, what do you want me to do? He, he is pursuing God's will as he should have been long ago. But he's run out of options at this point. He, he's realized that his own reasoning, his own thinking, well, it ended him in a place of no return. But now that he's turned to the Lord, well, now he wants to know the, God, he wants to know the will of God. He realizes that he needs to turn no longer to his own devices. And so we see here that he seeks 
the Lord's will and the Lord answers him. The Lord tells him specifically to pursue those who have placed this raid against him. Now at this point, David doesn't know or, or probably doesn't know who's done this. He doesn't know uh, that it's the Amalekites. There's no indication of that. And he certainly doesn't know where they're at. But he knows from the Lord that he's to pursue them. And that's what he does. But in order for him to do that, well, God's going to have to aid him and help him. And that's exactly what we see him do. And that brings us to the second point there in your outline. God providentially provides for David and his men in their time of need. And we come to verse 11 and we read, They found an Egyptian in the open country. They found an Egyptian in the open country. Now, friend, that's a fascinating thing when you consider what's taking place here. Well, when you consider that the context that David and his men are in, that they've just lost everything, they, they have no allies, they have nowhere to turn, that they know from God they need to pursue who did this, but they don't know where to go. And in fact, we know it's the Amalekites, and what we know of the Amalekites is that they were nomads. They, they didn't have a home. They were experts at not leaving a trail. They literally could have gone anywhere at this point. And there's no indication that David and his men have any direction of where they're to go and where they're to find them. And remember the context here. David's men want to put him to death. So you can imagine David going to the men and saying, men who had stones in their hand, remember they wanted to kill him, and saying, listen, if you'll just follow me one more time, I think I can get us out of this. If you'll just follow me one more time, I think I can find our families and our provisions. If you'll just follow me this one more time. And stone in hand, perhaps one of his men said, well, where are we going? I'm not sure. Well, who are we after? I don't know that either. <laughs> and yet, it's in this moment, that this, this trust, this, this step of faith, that we're able to see the providential hand of God at work. Because as men found an Egyptian in open country. Why is this significant? Well, it's significant because this Egyptian knows exactly who took uh, David and his men's families, this Egyptian, not only knows exactly who took them, he knows exactly where to find them. And he knows this because he was with those men when they made that raid. Now consider how providential this meeting is. I mean, this man tells him that he was left behind because of an illness. And so there, there's multiple factors at play here. Just consider for a second his illness. That this means that in the days perhaps leading up to this raid, he had gotten sick. And, and perhaps he got sick because there was a cook making food for some of the servants who, who got distracted. And perhaps in his distraction, he, he didn't fully cook some of the meat. And perhaps that, that one little portion of meat that wasn't fully cooked, it ended up on the plate of this particular servant. It made him ill so that he couldn't continue on. And not just that, he happened to be under the care of of a master who seems to be very impatient. 
who didn't seem to care much about his life. And when he fell ill, he doesn't seek to help him. He doesn't seek to get others to carry him along. He essentially, in his impatience, says, we're just going to leave him for dead out here in the open country. And then consider that in this vast open region, this sickly man who's probably laying on the ground by a rock somewhere, that David's men, or at least a portion of them, just so happened to come across him not having any idea who he is or what he knows. And in their grief and in their despair, while they're thinking about killing David, while they're mourning the loss of their families and their possessions, they seem to be overcome with compassion to help out this dying man, not knowing who he is and not knowing what he knows. And then it just so happens... (laughs) That this man knows exactly what they need to know. He knows exactly where it is they need to go. My friend, you can look at that one of two ways. You can look at that as chance and coincidence. As happenstance. It just so happened that he ate undercooked meat or whatever it was that made him sick. It just so happened that his master was impatient and just cast him aside. It just so happened that David's men came across him. It just so happened that in that moment of their own grief that they had compassion. It just so happened. Or, you can look at this the way I believe God's presenting it to us, that this is the providential, sovereign hand of God at work from the moment that the meat was undercooked until the moment that this man was discovered. That this was the sovereign hand of God at work. And friends, when you study the Scripture, you you realize that this is the sovereign hand of God, and you realize there is no coincidence and chance in the will of God. Pastor John Piper said it this way, if there is a God in heaven, there is no such thing as mere coincidence. Not even in the smallest affairs of life. We serve a great and awesome sovereign God who is involved in the finest, most minute details. And he is doing this to work out his will and his ways. And friends, we see this all the time when we look through the lens of his word and through the lens of salvation history. I was thinking this week in my preparation of an account I heard a number of years ago when Sandy and I were going through our training to serve as campus ministers with Campus Crusade for Christ. We had a missionary come and share with us, and he shared the story of a colleague, a fellow missionary, who was in the midst of his language training, and he was ministering to an unreached people group in one of the farthest corners of the world, and Their language wasn't known very well, and so he was in the process of trying to learn this language, and he had an opportunity uh, on a given day on the side of a road because his car had broken down and someone had stopped to help him. He had the chance to share the gospel with one of the people from this community. It was the first opportunity he'd had to share the gospel there. And so he tried in the the broken little bit of language he knew to walk through the gospel. And as he's walking through the gospel, he got to the point of wanting to communicate to this man that Jesus was, was pierced for our transgressions. 
and he started trying to figure out the, the word to use for pierce. How, how do I say he was pierced? And he, he looked through all the language resources he had. He thought through everything he knew. There, there was nothing for pierce. In fact, he later realized there was really no word in that language for piercing something. And so he kind of fumbled his way through and he didn't get really his point across. But the man was there with him, had a can of sardines and kind of gestured to him, let's, let's share this can of sardines. And then as he opened up that can of sardines, laying on top of the sardines as he revealed the lid, there was a needle laying there. And he took that needle and he went back to his gospel presentation and he showed him pierced and explained to him the gospel more clearly. Now, you can look at that a couple of ways, even under the providential hand of God. Perhaps God miraculously manifested and created a needle in that moment <laughs> In those sardines, and God could do that. Or, I don't know the shelf life of sardines, but I'm guessing it goes back years. <laughs> and years before in that sardine factory, probably in a, another part of the world, as those cans were being put together, and God's providence, this needle, lands in it as this lid's going on it. So that months, years, weeks, however long it is later, this missionary might have a more specific illustration, a way to communicate the gospel. Because that's a providential hand of God at work. We see it as we consider that story of that missionary. We see it as we consider David and his men in their time of need. And we see the same in our lives today. God is providentially at work through our good times and our bad, through our highs and our lows, through our victories and our losses, through our celebrations and our sufferings in ways that we may never fully recognize this side of eternity. God is at work. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We're reminded from 1 Samuel chapter 30 that God is always at work. And sometimes we, we get so focused on our, our circumstances and our situation that we don't really stop to, to look at that big picture of how God is at work. Sometimes we're looking for that big picture and we, just, we have trouble seeing it in the midst of our trial and our suffering. How could it be that God is providentially working through this specific trial? And it's in those moments that we are called to walk by faith and not by sight, to trust in the promises of God, to trust that Romans 8.28 is true, that we might know by faith that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And so here in our passage, God was at work to direct and to guide David and his men through this Egyptian servant. So David listens to this servant as he receives nourishment and he's able to tell them where to go. And so David and his men, they, they then go where the servant tells them to go. And sure enough, there's the Amalekites and, and they're sort of having a party here. They're, they're excited about all this provision they've gotten. Little do they know that that's all about to end. David and his men come and utterly, completely wipe them out. And again, we see the providence of God here. Verse 19, that nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. 
I mean, perhaps better than David and his men ever would have imagined. God restores everything. He replaced David's sorrow with joy. That's what we read about earlier in Psalm 30. In fact, that psalm goes on to say, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And that's a psalm that was sung at the dedication of the temple. And perhaps that was, this was an event that David was considering as God put together that psalm through his divine inspiration. So we can see, I believe in this passage, that, that, that David hits rock bottom and, and God turns his attention to him. And then as he does that, we can see how God providentially is at work here and provides for David and his men in their time of need. And there's one more thing, one more lesson, excuse me, I want us to see from this passage. And that's a lesson about grace. Point three, David teaches his men a lesson about grace. And so, as we continue and come to the end of the chapter, we see that David and his men, they've, they've conquered the Amalekites, they've gotten their families back, their stuff back, and in Cation here, they've actually gotten more back. And they've taken all this stuff the Amalekites have taken from others. This is the spoil of battle. And as they're returning back, they come across these men who weren't able to go to battle with them, men who were too exhausted that they couldn't make the journey, they couldn't put up the fight, and so they had stayed behind with, with some of the things of David and his men. And as David and his men come back, David is prepared to divide up the spoils with them so that not only will they receive their family and their possessions back, they'll receive these spoils as well. But some of David's men have a problem with this. They don't think that's fair. They're the ones who risked their lives. They're the ones who went into battle. They're the ones who did the heavy lifting. These others, well, they just stayed behind and they're by this brook and they're just relaxing casually while their lives were on the line. It's not fair. So they basically tell you, David, they can have their families. But we don't want them having this stuff. This is our stuff. This is our spoils. But David makes an important distinction in his response to him, and it's one I want to make sure we don't miss this morning. He says this in verse 30, 23. He says, we're not going to do that. <laughs> you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. And so David makes an important distinction here, and basically he's looking at his army, and he's essentially saying to him, now, now which one of you was responsible for this? Which one of you hatched the scheme through which we were going to stumble across a random sick Egyptian in the open country who was going to lead us to this? Well, which one of you was the mastermind here that made sure that not one of our family members was harmed, that none of our stuff was lost. Well, which one of you was that? David makes it clear to them that God 
was the one who preserved them. That God was the one who provided for them. That God was the one that enabled the rescue of their families. That God was the provider of all that spoil. And who were they to tell others they could not benefit from that which God had freely given? This is a picture for us of the grace of God. We often make the distinction between God's grace and mercy by saying you know, mercy is not receiving what you deserve. You rightly deserve the wrath of God for your sin and God withholds that wrath through His mercy in the gospel of Jesus. And then grace is getting something you don't deserve. God freely offers the gospel to us by His grace. We have not earned it. We do not deserve it. God showed grace to David and his men. They did not deserve this. And yet God did this. He was gracious to them. And because they had been the recipients of God's grace, now they needed to demonstrate that grace to others. Friends, that's a gospel reminder for us this morning. Because if you're a follower of our Lord Jesus today, then you are a recipient of God's grace. And you, in turn, should show that grace to others. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We did not deserve the death of Jesus. We deserved death ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That, that's what we deserve. But God is gracious to us. God shows His love to us. And that Jesus died for us. We did not earn Christ's death on the cross. We did not deserve Christ's death on the cross. Jesus died in our place because of the sovereign grace of God. That's why we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, this is the free offer of the gospel. Have you received it? Have you responded to it? I'm familiar with most of you. I see your faces each week. You've heard it before. The question is, have you responded to it? God's Word says that if we'll confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. This response takes action on our part, a step of faith, of trust. We need to respond to the grace of God. And then one of the byproducts of that is we need to show that grace to others. We love because He first loved us. We show grace because He's shown grace to us. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Perhaps this morning some of you need that reminder. Maybe you're struggling to show love to someone, grace to someone, forgiveness to someone. If you have received that from God, you should freely give that to others. The question is, have you received that? Have you responded to this free offer of grace? And are you showing it, sharing it? with others. I believe that's what we're left to consider as we consider 1 Samuel 30 and as we come into this time of response to God's Word. So if you would pray with me as we consider how we might now respond. Father God, we thank You for Your Word 
and the picture we see in your word this morning of grace, of your providential sovereign hand, that there are no coincidences. There's, there's no coincidence that this passage is being preached on this Sunday in this place to these people. You are sovereignly at work, providentially in this moment, calling every one of us to faith and repentance. And so, Father, if there's any here who's yet to put their trust in Jesus, who's yet to confess Christ as Lord, who, who perhaps is struggling to believe these things, would you work through the power of your Holy Spirit to lead them to believe, to call them to confession, to lead them to make that public before this body of believers? Perhaps some of us, Lord, are struggling this morning with showing the grace to others that you've shown to us, to showing forgiveness to others that you've shown us, with showing love to others that you've shown us. Lord, would you help us to do these things, not in our strength, but Lord, would you strengthen us as you strengthen David to walk by faith and not by sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family and guests, we invite you now to stand together during this time of response as we sing the 23rd Psalm, as we're reminded of what it is for the Lord to lead us and guide us and shepherd us. And as we sing, uh, we do invite you to come if God is leading you to come and publicly profess Christ as Lord to take that next step of obedience and baptism to start the process of joining this church family. If you just need someone to pray with you today, I'd be privileged and honored to do that. So we invite you to sing. We invite you to come during this time of response. <laughs> 